This morning, I'll ask you to take a copy of God's Word, if you have one, and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we've been going through the book of Luke, and we'll continue that study today. We're going to begin reading in verse 11. I'm going to ask Angela Stankas to come up and read for us, beginning in verse 11, Luke 19, 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another man came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man, You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reap what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him. And give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So this is God's word. These are the words of Jesus. Expectations often shape what we experience. Expectations, what what we expect to happen often has this huge impact on what, what actually we experience in a given situation. That is why a good teacher would know to prepare their students so that when they take the test, they're, they're ready. They know what to expect. That's why a good parent would want to make sure her kids know what to expect in life, what will be thrown at them. That's why a good coach might try to calibrate expectations for a match or a meet or a game so that someone would know exactly what to expect when they get on the field or get on the court. That's why a good nurse would set expectations for a a medical procedure so that the patient would know this is what's going to happen. Because when we have faulty expectations, 
often we're thrown off balance. Like, I, I didn't expect for that to happen. I wasn't looking to that. And, and it becomes very, very difficult when expectations aren't met. Jesus cares so deeply about the expectations of his disciples, his first disciples and us as well, that he gave some instruction, and I want us to hear it today. His disciples are processing, by the time you come to this place in Luke 19, his disciples are processing a ton of things. They've seen miracles that no human eyes have ever seen. I mean, Jesus has calmed the waters. He's walked on the waters. He has fed thousands of hungry people with with little or nothing. He has... He has spoken with authority like no one else has heard. He's made the dead come to life. So you can imagine there are expectations of this person is going somewhere. If we hitch our wagon to his train, we will, we will go some places. And even Jesus is actually speaking in such a way that those expectations are building. That's why when Jesus tells this story, it's so important that we know what the disciples were expecting. It gives us some context. So an important rule always of Scripture is like you always are supposed to read it in context. Look at the verses before the verses after, especially when it comes to parables. Otherwise, you could, most parables you could make say whatever you want them to say until you get kind of the, the disciplined governors of, okay, here's the context. So verse 11 of this chapter sets the context. If you heard it a minute ago when Angela read it, Luke 19, 11 says, as they were hearing these things, he's telling them a parable because two reasons, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They're headed to Jerusalem and all throughout the book of Luke, you get this, you get this idea that something big is going to go down in Jerusalem. They're headed that way. Something significant's going to happen. And so as they are now just days away from Jerusalem, something big, and they can feel it, that it's going to happen. And they also believe, probably connected to going to Jerusalem, is that God's kingdom is going to come. I mean, Jesus had even told them to pray, your kingdom come, Lord. They expect it to happen. And, and their idea of God's kingdom coming is going to be very different than when it actually comes. But, but they are hyped up, ready for the kingdom of God to appear. So, why I say that is whatever Jesus says in this story is significant with that context. We've got expectations high. And whatever he says is going to help them immediately, and it's also going to help them in the future. As we read a parable, and so Jesus told one that we're going to look at more in depth, it's really, really important with parables that you don't just try to get every single detail, like every blade of grass has some, this has a significant meaning, and this has a significant meaning. Every little detail of, of all the parable, all the characters, and every little word has all sorts of allegorical meaning. You, you actually hurt yourself when you do that to a parable. You're looking for the, the big meaning, the big message that Jesus is conveying. So what is that? What is he conveying by the story he tells that we'll dive into? I believe that the message is this, that Jesus is encouraging his disciples that they can be certain of a few things. We're going to look at two of those, that they could be certain of a a couple of things. One of those things that they could be certain of is that Jesus is the king. So he tells the story so that they would be certain that he is the king. What does the parable say? It talks about a nobleman that goes to a far country to receive a kingdom. An interesting background 
at this time, they would have remembered in history, about the time that Jesus was born, that one of the Herods left the area of Palestine to go to Rome to receive rulership over that area of Palestine and came back and was appointed a ruler. He went to receive a kingdom, if you will. So they would have known that story. And Jesus takes that story and uses it to help them see something significant about him, that he is receiving a kingdom even as he will go away. This is to help them. Jesus is king, and they need this reminder because they are living in a world that is swirling. There's lots of people that love Jesus. But in a couple of weeks, they're going to see people hate Jesus and crucify Jesus. This parable even talks about enemies who aren't so glad about someone receiving the kingdom, about someone being king. His disciples are going to have to engage with that, and Jesus wisely prepares his disciples reminding them that he is the king. While he may go away, he's going away through his death, even through his resurrection, to receive the kingdom. The disciples needed to make sure that they were strong and clear with the truth that Jesus is the ruler. He's the king. It's not just the disciples that need to hear that. We need to hear it this morning. Because life begins to unravel, and you begin to wonder is God really in charge? Is God good? How could this be happening if God is a good God? We have to remind ourselves certainly often that, that he is the king. I, I remember just, just a mile or so up the road going to Christiana Hospital, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. And, and I was visiting someone in the hospital that probably had been a Christian six decades, I would guess church most of their life. And I'm so glad. I was glad for the honesty and glad for the transparency. So it wasn't any sort of bravado of like, well, I'm just trusting in Jesus. Everything's good. As the person told me what, what they were experiencing, they said, pastor, can you pray? Because I'm doubting things that I've been confident of for years. But, but everything that's going on my, in, in my body and with the medicine, it's making me doubt things that I, I feel like I've been certain of for years. And so none of us are immune. None of us are exempt from having our world spin in such a way where we need the reminder, just like these disciples will need the reminder when Judas betrays and when their, their Savior is up on a cross, hanging, executed as an ordinary criminal, they need a reminder that he is the king. This is a big deal in Scripture that we're confident the followers of Jesus recognize. I mean, we don't talk about Jesus being king a ton. We probably should talk about it more. Because Peter, when he's preaching that first sermon in Acts chapter 2, that first Christian sermon, this is what he says. This Jesus God has raised up, so by the resurrection, it's clear to all for now forever that Jesus is the king. He's exalted at the right hand of God. This is what Peter preached. And so let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this one whom you've crucified. So Paul would even talk like this when Paul delivered this sermon uh, uh, in Athens. He would say this in Acts 17. 
God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who is Jesus, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all of us by raising him from the dead. Or the passage in Philippians 2, where it talks about Jesus being obedient to death, even to death on the cross. And because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is King. And it comes up again and again and again. Hebrews 1.8, the writer of Hebrews says, but of Jesus, Scripture says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Or 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus is the king. And because of that, there are two ways to live. There's a way to live not recognizing Jesus as king. There's a way to live doing things your own way, rejecting the ruler, running your life your own way. Or there's another way to live. And that is submitting to Jesus as your ruler, relying on Jesus' death and resurrection. When you do that, you receive forgiveness from God. You're given eternal life. I I don't think if you just walked into the room never having heard any story about Jesus, never having read the Bible, I could imagine where it'd be very, very difficult to process. You would need time to think and ponder Okay, that guy is telling me Jesus is the king. I need time to, he's the king of the universe. I need time to think through this. But I, I want you, I just want to make sure that you take Jesus seriously when he makes that claim. I want you to realize the core to Christianity is not just like people trying to be better people. It's not as if Christianity is just one of those religions and you just kind of pick which one works for you for a while. Christianity makes some different claims and right at the top of that is that Jesus is our king. And the disciples will need that to grind out the next days and weeks and months and years. Jesus is king. He's crafted this story to help us realize, okay, a nobleman goes off, receives the kingdom. There's a second thing that Jesus wants us to be certain of. And that is not just that Jesus is the king, but also that Jesus will return. This story helps us with that. This parable helps us with that. Because in verse 15, the nobleman who went off to a far country and, and was delayed in his coming back actually did come back. And the way the story is written is that he was always going to come back. There was a delay, but he was always going to come back. Imagine as Jesus is looking at Peter and John and James, and if you had been in that circle with him, he would want you to know that although I'm going away, I will return. I will come back. I will come back. What he did not give was a clear timetable of when he would come back. And so that certainly gives us some challenges. We don't know. So, so people do foolish things like try to set a date. Here it is. It's this date, whenever. And, and they try to post articles or sell books on, this is the date that he's coming back. I've read the code. It's all in the numbers or something. And they make fools of themselves. Because he didn't tell us. He's gone. 
He died, he's risen from the dead, he's in heaven, and he will return. But he didn't tell us when that would be. There's no intricate timetable. So what happens? That's not an easy place for the followers of Jesus to be in. What happens to us while we wait? Well, we, we worry at times, we fear. We wonder, did, did I, I get this right? The first followers of Jesus would have experienced the same thing. Did I miss something? I remember when I was in college, so that's pre-cell phone days. That's like when Martin Van Buren was president, right? Ancient times ago, back when I was in college. I remember going home some weekend. So I went to college in Florida and I lived in Georgia. And I remember sometimes you'd be able to catch a ride with someone that was going going home, and maybe they could drop you off in Atlanta, and my parents would come up and drive and meet, meet us in Atlanta. What was tricky pre-cell phone is you didn't know, like, when you were going to... You planned the time, like, I think it's going to be around this particular time, but you're stuck in traffic. There's no, like, well, just send a text, and everybody will know what's going on. And so, I mean, you can imagine, sometimes you get there, and you're waiting. Like, I thought we said this time, maybe did I miscommunicate? Did, I, did, I, did we get the wrong thing where our wires crossed? Because I thought this was the time, but, but they're not here, or, or we aren't able to make it because we're in traffic, and someone's going to have to wait at whatever, like, rest area or McDonald's that we were planning on meet, meeting at. We get, we get anxious because waiting is difficult. And let me just say, some of you have walked with the Lord for maybe months, Some of you have walked with the Lord for years, some for decades. And I just want to warn you, as a fellow Christian, even as a pastor this morning, that it is very easy to get impatient. And your impatience can often, my impatience can just derail my walk with the Lord. If like I've been waiting on the Lord to work, or I've been waiting even on the Lord to come back and just like set and order this mess of a world that we live in, our impatience can derail that. We begin to think, you know, I don't... And maybe we don't even say it to ourselves, but what, what functionally is driving us is, well, maybe he's not. And maybe it doesn't matter so much anyway. And I guess it is what it is. When he comes, he comes. But I feel like I need to live with a different sort of priority, different things governing my life. Are you waiting for the Lord's return? What Jesus does here is steady the hearts of the disciples so that they don't just live for themselves and don't get impatient, but they wait so they might not even grow tired in the meantime. I love, I love how Peter talks about this waiting on the Lord. So 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 says this, do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So if Jesus left 2,000 years ago, that's pretty much Friday lunchtime. A couple of days. But notice what else this verse says. In verse 9 there, the Lord, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But you want to know what's happening in the delay? God is patient toward us not wishing that any should perish, but in, in this delay of his coming back again, because he didn't come back in 2005 or 13 or so far in 2017 or 1963 or whenever, you, know, you, you pick the time. 
the delay, what that's accomplished is the Lord has shown his patience, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But make no mistake, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then heavens will pass away with the roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's just interesting. God's patience, this is the day of God's patience, but make no mistake, don't let that fool you into thinking, well, I guess he's never coming back. Because when he comes back, judgment comes. I don't know if you read, those are stern words in Luke chapter 19, especially in verse 27. So we have the subplot of the enemies that say, we don't want him to be the king over us. And what happens to those enemies in verse 27? They're brought to be executed, which sounds horrific to us. Would have sounded very normal, like this is what happens when you have a new king. He just takes care of his enemies in that way. When you read this judgment of the Lord that comes on his enemies, and you read about Noah and Lot in chapter 17, some even go so far as to go like, well, yeah, yeah, Jesus would never have talked like this. He wouldn't have talked about judgment. But honestly, if you're going to get a Sharpie and start crossing out every place where Jesus talks about judgment, and it sounds kind of severe, you're going to have pretty much an unreadable Bible. Because Jesus talked about this again and again. He, he's been crowned king. He will return. When he returns, it will be unmistakable. And it will be decisive. But it will also divide. The picture of judgment is serious. It's serious enough that I want you to not mistake an important part of Scripture. And that is while we, while we recognize that Jesus will judge his enemies severely... He will put all of his enemies under his feet, Scripture says, repeatedly, not just once, repeatedly. This is the day where God is treating his enemies in a different way. He is showing mercy on his enemies. Those that might shake their fist at God, they're the ones that are actually in this season, in this day. Today is the day of salvation. I read Romans 5 in verse 10. It says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. While we were enemies... This is the day where God is is showing mercy to the enemies. Much more now that we are reconciled, we will be saved by his life. Colossians 1 says something very similar. Once you were hostile and alienated, you you were an enemy of God. But he has reconciled you now in the body of his flesh by his death. Don't minimize what Jesus is saying. Today is the day of grace, so trust him today. Trust in him. Don't choose. Why would we ever choose to face God as an enemy When today is the day of mercy, where God is turning enemies into his sons and his daughters, into his friends, into his family, why would you say, I don't have time for that? Don't be like those who didn't want the king to reign over them. Trust in what Jesus has done on the cross to reconcile you to God. So you have these two, these two things that Jesus wants us to be certain of. He's the king, and he will return. But in light of that, what should we do? And I think what Jesus does with these two, like, certainties, kind of lays the foundation, Jesus then will lead his disciples to have one priority. In In light of Jesus being the king and returning, his disciples ought to have one priority. So what's the priority? Well, let's go back to the parable. 
In verse 13, this is the priority. He calls the 10 of his servants to come to him. And he gives them 10 minas. And he says to them, engage in business till I come. That's the priority for the servants. Some translations even say, like, put your money to work. So he's given them a mina, which is about three months of wages. He says, go put it to work. And when he returned, he received a kingdom and he ordered the servants to give an account. Like, what'd you do with what I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you? The first comes in and says, Lord, your mina, notice the, even the humility about this. It's, it's still the Lord's gifts, right? Your mina has made 10 more. It's not like, well, I was really hustling. I made 10 more for you. It's like it was all yours to begin with. And 10 more. The next comment comes in. The mina you gave me, it's, I made five more. And there's rewards for that. One gets 10 cities, one gets five cities. Another comes and says, I, I, I thought you were a mean guy. I didn't want to deal with that. So just wrapped it up, put it away. And, and that one gets called the wicked servant. Like you could have put it in the bank. They, they get like 0.00002 interest, but you would have gotten something. But you chose to not do anything with what I would given you begins to, you know, take this one from him, give it to the one who has 10. So what is the priority? He's leading his disciples to one priority, and you saw it there. It is for us to maximize what we've been given in service of the king. That's the priority. To take what you've been given, to maximize it. Not for, your, not for you, not for me for the king. We understand this. I mean, if anybody should understand this, those who live in northern Delaware should understand what it means to take someone else's money and to care for that well and steward that well so that other people make money. And just drive down to Wilmington and see every bank kind of that's dotting the skyline. They know they're good at this. They're good at this, of taking money, investing in such a way where more money is made. So, so we can process this. We've been, been entrusted with something that is not ours. And we've been given a gift and an honor to take something with what we've been given and to use the energy and the competency, the skills, the talents we have to maximize it. Faithfulness is expected. Faithfulness is rewarded. Engage in business till I come. What does Jesus want us to engage in? Well, if we went to Luke 10 and we read verse 27, we would recognize what Jesus wants us to do with what he's given us is to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we read the end of chapter 10, Jesus would highlight to Mary and to Martha what is a priority for us. What should we engage in? What is the king's business? And Jesus would say, watch Mary because she just sat and listened to what I said. She's going to obey what I said. This is the one necessary thing. Do that. Engage in the king's business. If we went to Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, like we read last week, we would say, what's the king's business? Well, he is trying to seek and to save those who are lost. Let's do that. If we read Luke 24, Jesus commissions his disciples as witnesses of a message that repentance might be preached all around the world. Let's do that. 
Let's engage in what the king wants us to engage. If we read Matthew 28, we would go into all the world and make disciples. We would baptize them signifying like identification with Jesus. And we'd tell them, follow him. Follow everything he says. This is what we give our lives to. There's just clusters of activities that are done even here every week where people are doing this because they are in service of King Jesus. They're taking their time. They're taking their energy. They're taking their gifts. They're taking their skills. And God has given them those things and they're giving it to to the Lord. Whether it's someone that greets you when you come in, whether that's someone who set up the chair you're sitting in, whether it's someone behind the scenes or maybe out front, someone in a comfort zone, someone outside of a comfort zone. Maximizing what we've been given in the service of the king. I can't help, we've got Les and Teresa Spade, longtime members of Ogletown who moved away, and I can't help but think of a model of this would be that. For years at Ogletown, gave and gave in service of the king. Whatever the Lord gave them, they shared with us. That's, that's what our church is about. I think even outside of here, there are hundreds of things. So it's not just inside the walls. We'll leave here and we will engage in the king's business, what he wants us to do. So you're going to send a text because you care and because you know the Lord cares. You're going to put up and love a cranky neighbor because you know Jesus would want you to do that. You're going to spend time. You're going to throw a shower for a coworker. You're going to befriend a misfit because you know this is what Jesus would do. This is exactly what he would do. What the story reminds us is some of us can take one and turn it into 10, and some of us can take one and turn it into five, and some of us can take one and try to do the best with it we, we got. And so it's not a matter so much of, like, well done doesn't just come to the 10 minor person. We all have different capacities. We all have one priority, to maximize what's been given to us. So you have a position of authority. That's a gift of God. Take that position of authority and maximize it for the king. You don't have a position of authority. Take what you've been given and maximize it for the king. You have more time than others due to maybe even being unemployed or being retired. Take what you have, that precious commodity of time, and use it for the king. You have a good amount of cash. You have more cash than most people do in the world. Take that and use it for the king. You have a car. You have a house. Maximize that resource for the king. You're married. How will that serve the gospel? You're single. How will that serve the gospel? You have this gift, this talent, this skill. How will these serve the gospel? Jesus helps us with expectations. We wonder, like, when is he coming? What does he want? And he tells us, what, he tells us exactly what he wants. So today, I want to leave you with three questions. Three questions. The first is this. What tangible things in my life reveal that Jesus is my king? And the worship team, you can come up here because we're going to just reflect on these questions for just a moment and then we'll sing. The second question, is there anything I need to do to be more prepared for the return of Jesus? 
Is there anything I need to do? And maybe for some of you, it, it, the answer is absolutely, because you're totally unprepared, and you need to talk with someone before you leave here today. You need to talk with someone about what it means to even be prepared. And then third question, what are two to three ways I could better maximize? Even as I'm talking, there's got to be something that God's given you. What are two to three ways I could better maximize what I've been given, what I've been entrusted with in service of King Jesus? I'm going to take a minute to think about that. Because all, all we do here is just kind of say, gee, we ought to, we ought to just get after it. I don't know that's going to help us. But if in our mind the Lord opens our heart, we maybe even write a few things down. And maybe that's a discussion topic at lunch with some friends. Or maybe that's something for your prayer time this afternoon or tomorrow morning. Let's take a moment to think about those. And then I want to lead us in prayer. So, Lord, we we cannot bluff you. You know where we're living as if you're not the king. And you know where we are woefully unprepared for your return. For those we say, forgive us, Lord, help us. Help us get clarity on the fact that you are the king and you will return. And for all of us today, help us not get overwhelmed by life, but actually see what you've given us as as a gift that we're to steward. Help us maximize those things. In the end, it's not that we would get all glory, it's that you would. So we ask all these prayers in your name. Amen.